0: The StoryCast is supported by you every time you click on our Amazon banner and shop. So head over to StoryCastPodcast.com and click or bookmark our Amazon ad, and we get a kickback on every order you make, every time. Simple as that. Thanks. It's an idea as old as time. From the ancient caveman to the modern-day billionaire, It's all a part of the human experience. Love, both real and made up. It finds us, entwines us, and defines us. This yearning, this feeling of belonging can be legitimate and sincere, or it can also be manipulative, melodramatic. Regardless, love is the thing that draws us together, real or not. From juvenile crushes, To eloquently penned wedding vows, one idea defines the way that we love, live, and why we stick together. This time in the story cast. I can't live without you. Think you know true love? A love so powerful and real? Do you think or know that you've experienced true love? Think you can't be duped because love is tied to trust and trust is always a product of the truth so what follows here are three stories of a love that binds two stories are absolutely real and one is completely made up a fabrication a lie so put your heart out on high alert and you decide can you differentiate a lie from true love When we love someone, we choose to be together, sometimes forever. But for some, that choice isn't really a choice at all. The conjoined twins Chang and Ang Bunker were born in Siam in the year 1811, when it was announced that the twins, best known as the Siamese twins, were planning to come to France in 1831 French authorities were so afraid of the effect that the men, then 20, would have on France's women, that they banned their entrance into the country. While the concept of conjoined twins, two independent people permanently joined as one, is intriguing for many reasons, few aspects spur as much curiosity as how two people live romantic, sexual lives. According to author Joseph Andrew Orser's book, The Lives of Chang the bunkers born in Siam in 1811 and connected at the midsection by a fleshy band several inches long were spotted in their teens by a British merchant who first thought they were some sort of strange animal. When they were 18, he made a deal to bring them to America and exhibit them as public curiosities. Upon their arrival, they were subject to countless medical inquiries. One doctor testing their connecting band with needles to determine sensitivity found that, quote, Both boys drew away from punctures at the middle of the band, whereas at half an inch or more from the center, only the twin on that side felt the pain. He also found that, quote, when one experienced a sour taste, the other did as well, and that tickling one of them resulted in the other demanding to stop it. More than their connective similarities, though, the public wondered about the boys' potential sex lives. One story held that Chang interfered with one of Aang's pursuits, and that according to the paper, the brothers would have engaged in a duel, but the parties could not agree on a distance. This and other tales were more than likely unfounded, but provided opportunities for a public mockery. The prospect of the twins engaging in sexual relations with women disturbed sensibilities or surveys. Concerns existed about the impact that the twins' conjoinedness might have on women of childbearing age. In one extreme example, when a woman in Kentucky gave birth to stillborn, she claimed that she had seen numerous representations of the twins in newspaper advertisements around the time she conceived her children, which she claimed affected her imagination. The brothers gained fame as freaks and saw an opportunity as Americans. After a decade on the sideshow circuit, having saved money, they retired, bought land in North Carolina, and set out to create lives for themselves as proper Southern gentlemen. They bought property, became US citizens, and even took on slaves, as apparently you did in those days. But anyway, and then everything changed in 1843. Two men who had been joined together, not only as brothers, but as one human being, fell in love and married. They married, respectively, sisters Adelaide and Sarah Yates, daughters of a respected local landowner. The brothers had gotten to know the women over several years, often visiting them upon return from business travels and befriending the entire family. When the couples made their intentions to marry known by riding together in an open wagon, one report of the Times cites how all hell broke loose in the community. A few men smashed through some windows of the girl's father's farmhouse, and some of his neighbors threatened to burn his crops if he did not promise to control his daughters. The local media reacted to the unions with jibes. The Carolina watchman, in a post titled Marriage Extraordinaire, wished for the marriage to be, quote, as happy as it will be close. Another paper inquired as to whether the woman ought to be indicted for marrying a quadruped. Northern newspapers were appalled, as abolitionist papers placed responsibility for the Union squarely on a South contaminated by the sin of slavery. One paper even called the marriage beastial and referred to the tolerant local residents as, quote, a community sunk below the very sodomites in laviciousness. For their part though, the two couples, and they were unquestionably two distinct couples coming to live in separate homes with the brothers alternating half-weeks in each, sought little more than normal lives. But many among the public and the media, having barely brought themselves to tolerate the brothers' existence, found the concept of intimate relations between them and normal women a step too far. And then, in 1844, each wife gave birth. While no details survive about how the couple's conducted their intimacy, it's worth noting that the brothers' first children were born six days apart and later a pair eight days apart. They would go on to have an astounding 21 children between them. When the twins, in need of money, later returned to touring exhibitions, this time bringing two of their children along, many refused to accept this unconventional family. As they traveled through England, some in the British press doubted whether the family was even real. For some, it was too, quote, disgusting to imagine these human monsters as husbands or fathers. In 1870, Chang suffered a stroke that paralyzed his right side, the side closest to his brother. Aang nursed him back to relative health as Chang tied up his right leg in a sling and, using both a crutch and his brother's arm, went about on his daily routine. But he never returned to full health and took to drinking. A lingering cough later turned vicious, and he died on January 17, 1874. His brother, complaining of ill health, asked his son to check on his brother. Told that Chang had passed, Ang replied, then I am going." Over the next hour, he suffered pain, distress, cold sweat, During this time, the only notice he took of the dead twin was to move his body nearer to him. Two and a half hours after losing his brother, Aang died. On that day in 1874, two lives ended and one love between brothers in a life that quite literally brought two people together. And two sisters that loved two brothers who each whether through connected flesh or connected hearts. Just couldn't live without each other. There's no sugarcoating this love story. It's sad. It's terrible, even. But, you know, sometimes the most beautiful things in life surface through tragedy. Witness the transcendence of the human experience. Gordon and Norma Yeager were married for 72 years. The devoted Iowa couple died holding hands in the hospital in October, 2011, exactly one hour apart. The passing reflected the nature of their marriage, where, as a rule, everything was done together, said the couple's daughter, Donna Sheets, 71. Gordon Yeager, 94, and his wife Norma, 90, left their small town of State Center, Iowa, on Wednesday to go into town, but never made it. A car accident sent the couple to the emergency room and intensive care unit with broken bones and other injuries. But even in the hospital, their concerns were each other. She was saying her chest hurt, and what's wrong with Dad, even laying there like that? She was worried about Dad, said the couple's son, Dennis, 52. And his back was hurting, and he was asking about Mom. When it became clear their conditions were not improving, the couple was moved into a room together, in bed side by side, where they could hold hands. They joined hands. His right hand, her left hand. Gordon Yeager died at 3.38 p.m. He was no longer breathing, but the family was surprised by what the monitor showed. Someone in there said, why then when we look at the monitor, is the heart still beating? The daughter, Donna, recalled. The nurse said Dad was picking up Mom's heartbeat through Mom's hand. And we thought, oh my gosh, Mom's heart is beating through him. Norma Yeager died exactly an hour later. Dad used to say that a woman is always worth waiting for, Dennis said. Dad just waited an hour and held the door for her. But wait, let's back up. Rewind to a different time, a happier time, seven decades ago. The inseparable couple was engaged and married within 12 hours in 1939, on the day Norma Yeager graduated from high school. She graduated from high school on May 26th at about 10 a.m. and by 10 p.m. that night, she was married to Gordon. The vibrant duo had a, quote, very, very full life, according to their children. They worked as a team, they traveled together, they were in a bridge club together, and they worked in a Chevrolet dealership, Creamery, and other businesses. They always did everything together, said Donna. They weren't apart, they just weren't. Dennis describes his father as an outgoing and hyper man who was still working on the roof of his house and sitting cross-legged at the age of 90. The party didn't start until he showed up, he said. He was the outgoing one and she was the giver. She supported dad in everything and he would have been lost without her. Dennis said it's strange to go to his parents' home now and see the two chairs side by side that they sat in all the time, empty. He said it was in those chairs that his parents cheered on the Arizona sports teams they loved and rarely missed an episode of Wheel of Fortune and Price is Right. According to their obituary, besides their children, the Yeagers are survived by her sister, Virginia, and his brother, Roger, as well as 14 grandchildren, 29 great-grandchildren, and one great-great-grandchild. Grandson Randy says he's been inspired in his own 13-year marriage by his grandparents' loving and lasting marriage. Quote, Grandpa and I were talking this summer about all the people getting divorced for this reason or that, and he mentioned that no one stays together anymore. I told him that my wife, Mara, and I would never be getting a divorce, and he said, that's because you're old school, like me. All their life has been together, Donna said. So when they went to the funeral home, the family asked, can we put them in the casket together, holding hands? Because that's the way their life was. So they did. A real-life nursery rhyme played out last summer in the northeastern U.S. It was a date that started and finished with a rock. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down, broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. The Rumney Rocks are a series of 20 or so crags scattered throughout a 150-acre area on the 1,600-foot Rattlesnake Mountain in the western White Mountains of New Hampshire. The Rumney Rocks attract both beginner and novice rock climbers. For experienced climber Jack Ruffalo, it was more than an afternoon on the rocks. It was also a first date. Jill Long reminisces that she and Jack met when they were colleagues at a local elementary school. They both had graduated college in 2011 and became well acquainted on their first day of their careers in the teacher's lounge. He was cute, she recalled. Cute in that I'm a bearded, khaki-wearing 23-year-old about to be weighing over my head with kindergartners sort of way. We were both pretty green and excited to teach. Things were friendly and platonic between them for years. Jill points out, I mean, there might've been something there, but we worked together at an elementary school. No way, we didn't make a move. Well, that all changed when the Montignac Regional School District reorganized in 2014. Jack's kindergarten class would remain, but Jill, her position as a second grade teacher, would be migrated to another school. I was sad, Jill recalled. I loved my class and my school, but it might have also been the first time I realized how much I loved making fun of Jack's pleated khakis every day. I think it was then, when I left that I knew for sure something was there. Jack made the first move. That summer, he called her up and invited her to come rock climbing with him bright and early one morning. I figured we were friends, you know, he said. You could call it a date if you want, or just a couple friends hanging out. Leave it up to fate, you know. Jack and Jill went up a hill. Jack, an experienced climber, walked Jill through a set of beginner crags. It was all safe, you know, ropes and equipment, and you take it easy, said Jill. They summited an easy hill, and Jill was instantly hooked. Jill goes on, it was a high. He said it was a natural. So we moved on to a little more challenging rock. It took all morning, but by lunch, they'd safely reached the top and took a load off to enjoy the view. And then it happened. Jill recalls, it was so stupid. I dropped my water bottle, and I dropped about 20 feet or so, lodging into a rock. Jack just had to go get it. It was stuck in a precarious spot, at a part of the rock you wouldn't usually rappel down, but the hero Jack was, down he went, to fetch the pail of water. The details are all fuzzy, Jill goes on to say. After that it comes back in flashes, words, phrases. Jack fell down and broke his crown. He landed hard, blood, motionless. He'd fallen almost 30 feet to a ravine below. Jill, well-trained in CBR, did what she knew she had to, to get to him somehow. She recalls climbing down, trying to use a rope, and then Jill came tumbling after. After that, neither climber remembers much jill remembers coming to, occasionally she remembers panting pain blood jack never woke up lying there she said he was still breathing but i could barely move except to move nearer to him once i remember brushing my fingers in his thigh and i think i saw his fingers move and then it all went black Jack and Jill were spotted 36 hours later after another pair of climbers discovered their lifeless bodies. Miraculously, they were both alive, their hearts beating, their lungs breathing. Among many broken bones, both had sustained devastating damage to their spines. Jack had a lacerated shoulder as well as severe neck injuries. Jill had compound fractures and internal bleeding that would take four separate surgeries to repair. Most interesting to note, Jack at some point apparently awoke and tried to apply a tourniquet to Jill's fractured leg, something neither of them remember. Over three months, both Jack and Jill would remain in the hospital, the same hospital, and their bodies began the tedious process of healing and mending the broken pieces. Jack remained in a coma for over a month. Jill would ask to be wheeled into his room every day, and once her body would let her, she did and she would hold his hand. And whether he knew it or not, he would hold hers. And then one day, Jack woke up. Here's how he remembers it. First thing I remember is black, like really dark. It's almost like I could smell the dirt from the ground from where I fell. Part of me felt like I was still lying there. And then I heard her voice and her words and felt her hand. And when I squeezed back, It was then I knew I was alive. Jill doesn't recall the first words she said to Jack when he awoke from the coma, but Jack does. She said, Jack remembers, I can't live without you. Jack and Jill both got better. And when they grew strong, they spent nearly every moment together in the hospital. They grew closer. A month later, Jack asked Jill to marry him. The rock he presented her with from his hospital bed was one he'd found wedged in the climbing shoes he wore on that first fateful climb. Next year, Jack and Jill will be married atop that same rock. Jack and Jill will climb the hill, and they'll just stay there for a while. Maybe forever. So there you have it. Three stories of an undying love. People who just can't be without the other. And remember, two are true. One is completely made up. Can you spot true love? And Determine what's made up? The Storycast will be back in two weeks with more eclectic stories wrapped in an intriguing theme. Oh, and if you want to know which of these stories is not real, just Google it. It should be pretty easy.